Well, good evening. Welcome uh, back to the, our summer series called uh, The 400-Year Road, but it's really kind of a history lesson between, and I like, kind of like to use these summer four-week sessions for history. Uh, I think it adds context to the Bible, and you guys really seem to soak it up well. You're all really bright, and I do think it adds a lot of context. So we're talking about the 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. I really appreciate Blake Baston filling in. I was out of town last week, and he did a great job filling in. It's amazing <laughs> to be that young and know that much history, because I, I lived most of this. Uh, so, you know, it, it was easy for me. So, in all seriousness, he did a great job. He's a real asset to Crossings Church, and we're glad he's here. I do have to apologize. Uh, I do not have my question asker today, so we won't be able to do questions, but I didn't want you to think that was because I didn't want to answer your questions. I like to answer your questions, or that I was afraid to answer your questions, because I'm really not, because I've always had a deal, and that is you can feel free to ask any question you want, and I will feel free to make up any answer I want. <laughs> so I feel very comfortable here. I figure I'll be off this stage before you realize, I think he made that up, you know? So in all seriousness, she is doing some caregiving for a... Uh, relative who had surgery. Everything's great, but she's doing a little higher calling. So I think this is gonna be an excused absence and she will get the same pay she would have gotten had she been here, <laughs> which is nothing. So, <laughs> well, let me say a prayer for us and we're gonna jump right into this lesson. It is so exciting. Lord, thank you for bringing us together and we're grateful to you for the many blessings you've given to us. As the as your word says, we are in awe of how much you have blessed us in the heavenly realms. We thank you for Jesus, your son. We thank you for the hope and the promise of eternal life that we have. Lord, we do lift up the trials, the difficulties, and the joys of this time, and we give them to you. It's my earnest prayer, Lord, that you would be with the leaders of our nation and the leaders in the world. And Father, I don't necessarily ask that you make them do the right thing, but I pray, Lord, that their hearts would be drawn to you and that righteousness and justice would thrive. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm going to uh, recap just a little bit of, the, of what Blake talked about because I think repetition actually helps a little bit. So I'll try not to move slowly and make it boring, but I want to repeat a little bit each week because by the end, you'll realize you've really got this in memory. And as you read the Bible, it'll make a lot more sense as a result of it. So this is the world in uh, the time of the Babylonian Empire. So the key event in our scriptures happens in 586 BC. That is when the Babylonian emperor, I say king, but I mean, this, you can see how much territory this covers. It is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar conquered basically the nation of Israel, but it was called Judah at that time. He took over Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple of the Jews. He decided we're gonna wipe out these troublemaking people. And it wasn't just the Jews that he did this to. He did this to other people groups as well. By the way, his headquarters, his capital city was in Babylon, and that is in modern-day Iraq, and I know some of you that have served overseas have probably been to Babylon, but it's very near the modern city of Baghdad. 
And if you remember Saddam Hussein, he understood that his people group, they don't, they're Iraqis, they're not Babylonians, but that's that ethnic group in that area. He understood and wanted to restore an empire, if you will, that went all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, he saw himself as the leader like Nebuchadnezzar that could make his people thrive and restore their greatness. And so that was his dream going all the way back to this time. Well, in 586 uh, BC, the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem. They dismantle the temple. I mean, the, the temple that Solomon had built. So think Solomon is, he died in 930 BC. And so his temple is being destroyed in 586. So you can do the math, about 350 years that the temple of Solomon was there. But then the Babylonians literally pulled the stones down in 586 BC. But before this, he, and you may remember this story, it's near the end of the era of the New Testament, but basically he would come in and while they were paying tribute, because it was easier to have people pay tribute than to conquer them. That's expensive to have a war. And so for a while, the Jews paid tribute to him. And one of the tributes that they wanted was some of the best and the brightest young men. And they would take them back to Babylon and they would train them up. I mean, whoever got a really good SAT score, man, they would take them. They would train them in the Babylonian language and make them uh, civil servants to run this huge empire. And so Daniel was one of those young men. He probably was taken back to Babylon in 605 BC, 609, 605, right around there. And so needless to say, they kept bringing people until finally the Jews rebelled, 586, they destroy the place. But the reason I wanted to mention Daniel is Daniel is in Babylon when this happens. And Babylon, Daniel understands that there's going to be a period of exile. What is an exile? Well, when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they didn't just conquer it and say, hey, let that be a lesson to you. Don't do that again. They took most of the Jews and took them back to Babylon and put them to work as forced labor. So the Jews, most of the Jews got relocated on this map. It has the Kibar Canal, this area right in here, right near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel, we're getting close to the end of the New Test or the Old Testament book, prophet Ezekiel prophesied from there in exile. And so he, you basically get the Jews there and they are strangers in a land not their own. They don't know what, what is ever gonna happen. Their homeland is destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem are torn down. Other people moved in and took their houses. They have no idea if they will ever come back. But there was a prophecy in both Isaiah and Jeremiah. Again, prophets near the end of the Old Testament saying, God will bring you back from this exile. And so they had hope. Well, when Daniel is there in Babylon, God gives him two dreams. Blake talked about this, but I wanna recap it just a little bit is the dreams didn't have the empires on the right-hand side like this slide does, but looking back, wow, that really came true. And so he said basically these two dreams, one of some animals and others a statue, but 
it's, he basically said they're going, God told Daniel, and Daniel writes the book of Daniel, and he writes it down. He says there are going to be four major kingdoms or empires until the Messiah will come. And he will be the ultimate deliverer. And so looking back, we can literally chart exactly how that happened and the truth of it. Now, they were living through it, but at least they knew that there were going to be a progression and that God hadn't forgotten them, that at some point, they don't know how long, God is going to deliver them. So he's going to deliver them with a Messiah, a Savior, and it literally means an anointed one. And so looking back, what you see is the kingdom of Babylon, 605, roughly, that's when Daniel goes back to Babylon. And that kingdom falls in 539. Blake talked about this because the Persian king at that time overwhelms and conquers over a period of a few years the Babylonians. And so the Persians conquer them. Now the Persian people, show you a map in a minute, are where modern-day Iran is. So Iraqis and Iranian people are ethnically different groups of people. Okay, I mean, that's not unusual, but my point is, is even today, you see them being enemies uh, from all the way back at this point in time. And I'm not saying they're mad at each other because of this, but my point is, it's interesting how enduring history can be, particularly in this part of the world. So the Persians conquer the Babylonians in 539, and Daniel's still alive. And I think in the last lesson, Blake shared uh, a vision, an event, a historical event out of the book of Daniel that the last Babylonian king calls him in and there's writing on the wall, and he says, you're about to be conquered. And sure enough, he was. Well, that happened with the Persian king. So let me talk briefly about this Persian king. He is really a big deal in history. He's a big deal in the, in the Old Testament, but he is a huge deal in history. His name was Cyrus, and he lived from 600 to 539, or till 530 is when he died, but you remember in 539 BC is when he conquered the Babylonians, and then the kingdom gets large, and then of course his son takes over, and his son takes over, etc. But I wanted you to know that Cyrus was, was a, a big deal in history. I showed you a copy of this book. In 370 BC, because that's 200 years later, Xenophon, Xenophon is a Greek. He's not a Persian. In fact, Xenophon was one of the students of Socrates. So probably that places the Greek history, you probably have heard of Socrates, think 400 BC-ish or so. He wrote a book, which this is in English, he wrote it in Greek, about Cyrus, it would be like a business book today. Have you ever bought a business book that said how to manage like Steve Jobs or you know, how to do this? And it, it gives you a biography of a great business leader. That's what this is like. They so admired Cyrus the Persian as a great military leader, a great administrator. So Cyrus the Persian is known well outside the Old Testament. In fact, some of these findings and the fact that he's known so much outside the Old Testament adds a lot of veracity to the Old Testament story. It's like this isn't a once upon a time in a faraway land, you know, fairy tale. This is rooted in real history. 
So Cyrus is a real guy and he was a really successful guy. So look at this map. It is amazing how big the Persian Empire was. So at its peak, you see that the Persian, this is the Indus River Valley uh, and Delta, but they conquer as far east as India, all the way west into, this is Greece basically. They conquered all the parts of Egypt anybody wants, which is the Nile and all those areas. Of course they conquer this area in between Jerusalem. They've obviously conquered the Babylonians, conquered far north into the, what are today the stands, you know, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, etc. I mean, this is a huge empire of the Persians. And so the Persians, however, had a, had a little bit different philosophy. The Babylonians wanted to punish you by taking all your people, taking them back and making them work, you know, build interstate highways or whatever back in Babylon, right? Well, but that's not the way the Persians worked. They had a different philosophy. And so they said, actually, you Jews can go back. You can rebuild your city if you can. Uh, you know, float some municipal bonds, rebuild the city. It's up to you guys. And you can rebuild your temple if you want to. That's the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and Ezra. We're getting real close to the end of the Old Testament now. And so they start going back. Jews in waves start going back to their homeland. And of course, they have to pay taxes to the Persians, but they're allowed to go back and make their way in their homeland. Persians thought this is a better way to keep the peace. And so they did. And our Old Testament ends pretty much at this point. So the Jews start going back and by about 445 BC, okay, so we've had maybe 100 years of the Persian rule, you get the book of Ezra, the priest who brings back the worship of God. You get Nehemiah who rebuilds uh, the walls. And then finally, you get the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. And they're written right about this time. And this is when your Old Testament prophets and God's word stops. The people have come back, just like God said, out of exile from the Babylonians, and God has used the Persians to effectively accomplish this. Now, not that the Persians are good guys, and certainly not that the Persians believe in God. They just, you know, as, as Blake said last time, I, say, I always say it this way, all of history moves and bends to God's will. And so the Persians are trying to do their thing, and yet it ends up accomplishing what God said he would do, you know, 100 years before. So they end up back there, and that's how our Old Testament ends, is the Persians are ruling the world, and the Jews have come back. And that's kind of our, at the end of the Old Testament. So we have two of the kingdoms that Daniel has foretold. I wanna make a, a point about that, because you have to stop and, and ask yourself this, why do you think God gave those visions to Daniel for him to write down? Now, they didn't put names on them, but if you're a Jew reading it at that time, I'm gonna to suggest to you that you know two things. You don't know it's the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. I mean, we know that now, and, but they didn't know it when they were living through it. But what did they know? Well, they knew one thing, and that is that if God can see what's going to happen, then God must be sovereign over what's going to happen. In other words, no king can, no, no person could have predicted this. I mean, we look back and go, well, this is so obvious. Yeah, well, it would have been really hard to predict at the time of Daniel, wouldn't it? 
You know, no human could predict this. So they know two things. And the first is our God is sovereign. Our God is omniscient. He sees down this road all the way to the end. But the more important thing, the second thing is, is that if he can name these kingdoms, he can predict these kingdoms, and he's promised us that he will deliver us, he can actually bend these kingdoms to his purpose. That's hugely important because when you're living in the Babylonian Empire or you're living in the Persian Empire, it's not that much fun. I mean, they weren't just really nice people. And so things would go well, perhaps, but for a lot of people, it didn't go very well. And you weren't living in your homeland and you weren't as prosperous as you wanted to be. And you certainly weren't independent. You didn't have a bill of rights. You didn't have the freedom of speech or freedom of religion. In other words, it wasn't great. Nevertheless, you realize that even though that king was not serving God, they actually were effectively serving God's purposes. That God was sovereign and God is big enough to move all of history, even the bad rulers, and blend it into his purposes. And that's what he did with the Persians. Needless to say, there's a great life application for us out of that as well. Some, there are plenty of Christians in plenty of places around the world today that go, this is not pleasant and our ruler is not a Christian. Uh, you know, think North Korea, think China, think any number of places and say, and so our lives and our lot is not very free here. And yet we know that just like in those days, our God is sovereign and all of these things are gonna bend to his purposes. In other words, the true power in the universe is God, not Xi Jinping and not Kim Jong-un. So that lesson is a really powerful lesson. Well, who's the third kingdom? And that's what I wanna focus on is the next period. This period is completely between the Testaments. All right, so the Old Testament ends there with the Persians. And the Persians are gonna rule from 445, right around 445 is the end of the Old Testament, right around there. And so you will see the next kingdom come when a young man named Alexander is born. He was born in 356. So the Persian kingdom, as I just showed you, that massive kingdom is gonna survive for about 200 years. From 539 when they conquer Jerusalem and Alexander is gonna conquer them in about 330. So about a 200 year span of time that the Persian Empire is, is, is effectively the, easily the biggest power in the entire world for 200 years. So Alexander is born in what's now Greece, it's the northern part called Macedon. His dad was king, his name was Philip, the king of Macedon. Alexander didn't live a long life. You can see he died when he was 33 years old. But Alexander was a military genius. And Alexander, when he was about 24 years old, so say 332, by that time, he has burst out, and I'll show you what it looks like. Forget the names for a minute. But he is born here, northern part of Greece. He has conquered Greece. They moved over into, that's modern day Turkey. Of course, they move south through uh, Israel and into Egypt, conquer everything that matters in Egypt. In other words, they conquer what the Persians had. They completely destroy them. So they move all through Europe 
and Iran and Iraq and all the way east, conquers all the way again into India. And so Alexander dies out here, basically. I mean, he ends up getting sick and then he dies a little bit later. So he dies fairly young, but in a short life uh, span, he has unbelievable military conquests. And so he was kind of a military genius and he's called Alexander the Great for two reasons. One is obviously his great accomplishments. I mean, he was just a military success and he set up this great kingdom. But he did something else that's very unusual. When the Babylonians conquered the Jews, what did they do? They took some of their best and brightest back to Babylon, taught them the Babylonian language. If you read the book of Daniel, they gave them Babylonian names and they taught them Babylonian mathematics, which was pretty advanced at that time. And they brought them back and acculturated them and then they worked for them. Alexander turned it around. He didn't bring people back to Greece to serve them. He took Greece to them. You see, Alexander, interesting, interesting young man. He's a military genius, but he's also very well educated. So remember I told you about Socrates. Probably everybody's heard of Socrates, the great Greek philosopher. And he had a student very famous named Plato. Plato's writings influenced the whole world, religiously, philosophically, still studied today. Plato had a student named Aristotle. You may know of Aristotle. Aristotle is probably the father of the Western uh, philosophical tradition. United States, Europe, etc. that whole Western philosophical tradition probably goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle was his tutor. So Alexander the Great had great education for his time. So he's really well-educated and he's a great military leader. So he decides, I'm gonna take Greek to the whole world. So when he conquered, he not only took soldiers, he took uh, poets, he took language teachers, he took philosophers, he took singers to sing the great songs of of the Greeks, I mean, remember the Iliad and the Odyssey, which has happened hundreds of years before this time, but those are the great epics. You know, think Trojan horse and the Greeks fighting the Trojans and all of that. He took all those poets and singers and everybody with him and just left them in cities to teach the people Greek and to teach them about Greek culture, teach them to worship Zeus, the king of the gods and Hera, his wife, and all of the, you know, I mean, it, it is worse than a reality TV show. You know, all the gods and goddesses and all the stuff they're doing to each other, right? But he basically planted little, I hate to call them schools, but he seeded every community. Well, the Greeks are going to rule this, you know, spoiler alert, until, um, well, about 164. So think about another couple of hundred years. Think about how much you can acculturate someplace in a couple hundred years. The United States is, what, we just celebrated 247 years. So not that far off, but think about we were not a people, now we really are a people in common language and common culture. And I mean, think about what hap could happen in 200 years. Well, he was visionary enough to say, I'm going to take all these teachers and put them out there. Well, people wanted to learn Greek 
It's the same reason that most people in America or in the world, if they're gonna study a second language, it's usually English. Why? Because we're just better people? No, we're economically powerful. Whoever is the economic powerhouse, that's the language everybody wants to know because that's how you're gonna get ahead in the world, right? And so I'm just saying that the same thing happened there. The Greeks were the ruling government, they're the economic powerhouse, they're the authority. Well, we all wanna learn Greek. And you know what, they kind of realized that now that you've got this, for them, this might as well be a worldwide empire. I realize it doesn't cover the entire world, but it might as well be a worldwide empire because you've got trade from China and India going west and you've got trade from Africa coming up north and east. I mean, this is an economic powerhouse. And since you've got that, one of the things that people realize it's a good thing is when we used to have one kingdom after another, we didn't have a central banking system. I mean, how are you gonna go somewhere else and trade? Well, we use this money, well, we use that money. Oh, well, that's too bad, we use blockchain technology. We've never heard of blockchain technology. It was hard, right, to do business with each other. Now it became easy to do business with each other. We've got a whole empire that uses Greek coins. In the New Testament, in Israel, I'll just call it Israel, you're going to see when they talk about coins, they, those are Greek coins. A denarius is a Greek coin. In other words, Greek money is everywhere. People wanna learn the Greek language. And so almost everybody could speak some Greek. By the time of the New Testament, you know, which is going to be 300 years later, almost everybody in the known world can speak some Greek because it's just the second language that everybody would have because the Greeks have been so powerful. So what Alexander did this, not to further God's purposes, he did it to further his purposes, but it ends up furthering God's purposes. If you've ever wondered why is the New Testament written in Greek instead of Aramaic, think Hebrew, which is what Jesus and the disciples spoke, but they also spoke Greek because everybody did to some extent, certainly educated people did. And your New Testament is written in Greek because everybody in the world could read that. I mean, if you could read, but someone could read it to you and you would understand it. Does that make sense? So it's really interesting watching how God is, has kind of forecast this through Daniel to encourage his people. But as this plays out, it's not just a history lesson. It's not just, oh, isn't God cool that he knows what's gonna happen? It's everybody along this road accomplishes another step of what God wants done. So the Babylonians take the people away into exile and the Jews become way more religious and they have nothing to hold on to now but God's promise. Oh, and here come the Persians and they deliver on God's promise and they let them go back. And so now you have much more faithful uh, people. And so now here come the Greeks and what do they do? Well, they get a common culture throughout the world and a common language throughout the world. And so step by step, each one of these empires doesn't happen just by chance. These empires happen because Alexander's a military genius and Alexander's well-educated and Alexander wanted to spread Greek culture throughout the world, but that also served God's purpose. 
to prepare the world in a way. And so what the Greeks did, they did a lot of very bad things, which I'm about to tell you about, but they did some very good things, and that was spreading the Greek culture throughout the known world, okay? So key ideas so far. God is sovereign over this whole process, and he still is today. Second key idea is that even though earthly kingdoms come and go, and they certainly are not trying to honor God today any more than they did then, they end up actually serving God's purposes, whether they know it or not. And that's what I want you to see as we move through this, is how God's purposes are being furthered. Well, we still got a lot of time going on here. So we have Alexander dies in 323, and you've got this big kingdom, but he doesn't have any kids. So what happens to the kingdom when he dies? Well, he has four major generals, because he doesn't do this all by himself. He's got generals that take an army and go here and conquer this and that. And they report to Alexander. But I want to show you, uh, because this can explain a whole lot of history, I think. So here are, the, I know there are five names on here, but I just want you to ignore that. Ignore the other name. Okay, the big name is, and these are people. He had a general named Seleucus. He had a general named Ptolemy. He had a general named Atagonus, and then Cassander and Lysimachus. Forget those guys, they didn't do anything important. All right, so he's got these generals. And when he dies, what do you think happens? Seleucus goes, well, my troops are in this area, right? I think I'll be king of this area now. And Ptolemy says, oh, well, Alexander sent me to conquer Israel and Egypt. I guess since he's gone, I'm king of this area now. And so let me flip forward to another, eh, not yet. Okay, so this map, and Antigonus says, I've got Turkey, and then Cassander basically had Greece. But you can see how this naturally happens, right? By the way, I think Blake may have mentioned this last week, but in Daniel's vision, so the, you have these four beasts. Well, the Greek kingdom is the third, Babylonian, Persian, Greek. The third animal was a leopard, and the leopard had four horns. Now this is being told to Daniel long time before this happens. The leopard is Alexander, the great conqueror, but when he dies, there are four kings. A horn, if you've been in our Revelation series, you know that a horn is a ruler, strength. Well, there are four kings, and they, they don't technically divide up the kingdom, they just rule the part that their troops are in. Does that make sense? Happens all the time, and so it splits up. And so now the Greek empire, it's still very Greek. All of these people are Greeks. And I want you to particularly remember that with the Ptolemies. But all of these people are Greeks. So now there's intermarrying and all this going on, but they've got Greek culture, they're Greek rulers. Well, what happens when Ptolemy dies? One of his kids takes over. What happens when Seleucus dies? Little Seleucus Jr. takes over, right? And so that's the way empires work, is it just was handed down to your, your children. And so they decide they're each gonna make their own little empire. But you know how that goes. It's whatever you've got, you always want more. They start fighting each other. 
And so Seleucus happens to be probably the most successful of these generals. He's got a lot of troops. And if you think about it, he's got a lot of territory to draw tax money from. Because war isn't just about troops. I think we're finding that out right now. By the way, pardon me to dip into, into current events for a minute, but as the United States is sending munitions to Ukraine, uh, which will date this lesson a little bit, but the United States just made a very big decision to send cluster munitions to Ukraine. Why? Our president said, because we're almost out of ammunition, regular ammunition. Well, you need to think about that for a minute. Wars are not just about people fighting. Wars are very much economic enterprises. You need a lot of money to uh, equip and pay for an army and get cruise missiles and all that kind of stuff. Well, Seleucus, he's got the best, partly because he's got so many people under his rule, he can tax them. He's got a lot of money. And as usual, people with the most money usually have the biggest army. And so Seleucus is very successful, and I wanna show you what the world quickly looks like. So this is the world as it kind of shakes out. Seleucus, and so he gives his name to his descendants. So now his empire is called the Seleucid Empire. It's named after a person. Now you notice the Ptolemaic Empire. That's named after a person. In the New Testament, you're gonna see it with the Caesars. Right? You've got Julius Caesar and all the, you know, Caesar Augustus and all the Caesar family. Well, this is the Seleucus family and the Ptolemy family and the Herod family. And so you're gonna, this is just the way the world worked in those days. But Seleucus is very successful. Notice he's ruling all the way from India over here. He's taken over this entire area. He's got all of Turkey. The only thing he doesn't have is, is Greece, and he doesn't care. It's not a lot of money in Greece. You know where there was a lot of money? Egypt. So Seleucus, his descendants, and Ptolemy, his descendants, are constantly fighting. So I want to tell you two things about this. First, you know more about Ptolemy than you think you do because this is happening, oh, we're into the down around 200-ish BC now. I mean, the Greek empire has been ruling for quite some time and Seleucus's great-great-grandson continues to conquer and Ptolemy's great-great-grandson is fighting him. Two interesting things. Number one, the most famous Ptolemy that you know is Cleopatra. She's gonna show up later in our story. That's gonna be in a couple of weeks. She will figure into a really important love triangle. And so Cleopatra is a descendant of Ptolemy. She's part Greek. And so the Ptolemies ruled Egypt. Uh, the pharaohs of Egypt at this time are Greek uh, people. And the most famous one is gonna happen down, down the line. Well, the Ptolemies hold on to uh, Egypt but Seleucus wants Egypt. Guess who's right in the middle? Yeah, the poor Jewish people sitting there, got no oil, got nothing, but all the armies keep marching through. And you know what happens over the, over the decades is there'll be a strong Ptolemy ruler and they'll conquer and say, and you're paying your taxes to us. Here, here's your early, you know, here's your estimated earnings uh, thing. Mail it in to uh, Cairo. And then... 
One of the Seleucus kids will come through and they'll conquer and they'll push the Ptolemies back and they'll say, okay, you're paying your taxes to the Seleucid Empire now. And so they were caught in the middle and this is kind of the story of Israel, if you think about it. They've always been caught between two empires. Now, why are they caught between the empires? You probably know this, but this whole area is desert. People didn't make shortcuts because there's no water. So what happened, as you probably know, I'm probably telling you something that you know, is you obviously will go on a route where you have water. And so you would go down this narrow area, which is modern day Israel. And battles went back and forth for as long as there have been battles. There's always been a power in the south in Egypt and always been a power up in Mesopotamia. Think Iraq, Iran, I mean, from the beginning of time. And I've always thought, and this is really interesting, and I wanna, make, I wanna draw an interesting lesson for us today too. But you've gotta ask yourself, the Jews have never been a, a populous group of people in history. God chose Abraham, said, I'm gonna make you into a great nation. He did, but not like the Persians, not like the Babylonians, and not like the Greeks. And they've never had big armies trying to conquer the world. No Jew has ever tried to conquer the world like Nebuchadnezzar did or Cyrus did. And I'm not saying that to make some kind of an apologetic. I'm just saying that's just never been what the Jews have done. They said, we're God's chosen people. We have a mission to show the world what it looks like to be holy. And they struggled enough with that, right? And be faithful to God. No part of their DNA then or now, honestly, has been, hey, we're gonna conquer the world. Never happened. So they've never been a militarily hugely powerful nation, never been that big, never been that rich. And God gave Abraham the promised land of Israel. Well, wait a minute, why Israel? Why not the Nile? Why not the Indus? Those are way richer areas, right? If you want your people to thrive, you should plant them in Southern California. I mean, the weather's good, you know? Plenty of water, etc. but he doesn't. He puts them there. And so they are always going to be struggling with more powerful neighbors. So why do you think God puts them there? That was a rhetorical question. I'll tell you why I think God put them there is that's an extremely influential place to be, isn't it? If everybody's traipsing through your neighborhood, that's where you wanna put your lemonade stand, right? I mean, if you got a lot of traffic, that's where you want the lemonade stand. Now, it's not fun to have all that traffic. Of course, the Jews didn't enjoy being conquered by the Seleucids and then were conquered by the Ptolemies and were like, hey guys, can we just stop fighting? No, we can't. And just back and forth. Nevertheless, they actually could influence the whole world with their ideas. So if God wanted to influence the world and Al Gore hasn't yet invented the internet, how would you do it? Well, this is pretty brilliant if you think about it. He says, I'm gonna have some people that are wholly dedicated to me. They're gonna write my words down in what we call the Old Testament, the story of Moses, the story of Abraham, the story of King David, all of these things. All of these other people groups as they come through, they pick this up and they spread it around. In fact, in the New Testament, so in the time of Jesus, this is kind of an aside, but in the book of Acts, one of the interesting little things that's said is, I think that we should tell the Gentiles who are becoming Christians 
Okay, so that's what they were worried about is people that didn't grow up Jews and they're becoming Christians and they gotta quit fooling around and they gotta quit eating certain things and they just need to behave a little better. You know, they need to understand this is the way God does it. He says, we should ask them to avoid sexual immorality and a couple of other things. And here's the interesting thing, because Moses has been preached throughout the world. How did Moses get preached throughout the world? Because people kept conquering Israel. And people would learn the Jews, they would learn what they knew, and it would spread. It just would spread throughout the world. It wasn't a, a program, it's just God said, I'm gonna put you right there and it's gonna be a lot of suffering because you're gonna get conquered by everybody you can imagine has been through that part of the world. But you are gonna be able to tell everybody in the world about me. Does that make sense? That is brilliant. And that's part of what the Jews were chosen to do. Fast forward to you and me. The world is no longer governed by geographic realities, right? We don't live in a land that if you wanna learn about Christians, you have to come to Oklahoma, right? It's not like it was in those days. But if you think about it, because now we have the World Wide Web, we have all kinds of ways of, of influencing the world and there are a lot of voices. Christian voice is not the loudest voice in the world. I know that there are a lot of Christians in the world, but the Christian voice, God's word, is not the loudest voice in the cultures of the world. I would argue that we are a, quote, post-Christian nation is that Judeo-Christian ideas, the words of God, are not the most influential ideas in our culture. They certainly aren't in all of the world. We are today, I want you to think about it, we are the electronic version today of the geographic version of Israel then. Does that make any sense? That may not be the world's best metaphor, but Basically, we exist as a relative, relatively small voice in all of the voices out there in our, let's just, let's just talk about America for a minute to make it simple. All the voices in the public square advocating all kinds of things. It's considered today more and more in our country that the Christian voice in the public square is a bad voice and you shouldn't be doing that. Right? Those are not good ideas, those are not good people. All I'm trying to say to you is we have become the modern day Jews, if you will, in the sense that we have been placed exactly where we've been placed for a purpose of God. It won't be easy, just like it wasn't easy for them to have all these invaders coming back and forth, but it was very effective that God's word got out through the whole world. It's not gonna be easy to be a Christian in, it's not already in North Korea, or to be a Christian in China. And at some point, it's gonna be less and less easy to be a Christian in America. But I wanna encourage you, God is brilliant. Don't ever think that there's any chance that the word of God is gonna be squashed. If there were, that story should have squashed the word of God. I mean, you got the Jews, they should have been wiped out of history books so many times. Christians, think about the first few centuries in the Roman Empire, should have been wiped out of the history books so many times. But God uses the weak things of the world to confound the powerful things of the world. And so I just wanna encourage you, 
as you think about it, most Christians in America think, oh, things are going so badly. It used to be a Christian nation, now it's not. It used to be Christians were respected, now Christians are hated. Okay, I, I know that that's kind of a common way of thinking because it mirrors some of the reality. But my point to you is, is that don't think that's a bad thing in the sense that it's not pleasant. But God's will is not going to be thwarted by that. And so I know that's a little bit of a reach, but I think we are exactly in the position that the Jews were then. It's almost like uh, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies says, you pesky Jews, you're just nothing. And God says, oh no, we got you exactly where I want you. And that is, you keep conquering my land and I keep telling you about the word of God and watch what happens historically. Does that make sense? Same's true for us. You just keep speaking the word of God into this culture and watch what God does with it. You don't have to be Alexander the Great to conquer the world. That's what Jesus Christ showed. You conquer the world through the word of God. Alexander was great. Where's he now? He's dead. Where's his empire? It's gone. Jesus Christ, he's still alive and his empire will last forever. So I just wanna encourage you because history still speaks to us today as Christians. Okay, moving on. So the most famous Seleucid emperor for our purposes, he really focuses in on the Jews and his name is Antiochus. So he's one of the great, 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 great grandsons of Seleucus. So he's the, he's the ruler. And he's Antiochus IV. He ruled from 175 to 164 BC. He's called Epiphanes. Epiphanes means, uh, it's like, this is the Epiphany. You know, if you're Orthodox, you know that you celebrate Epiphany. Uh, what, 12 days after we celebrate Christmas? Epiphany means the appearance. Well, at that time, it was the appearance of the wise men. But for him, it was like, I am the appearance of a god. So Antiochus thinks he's a god. This is not that uncommon in those days. So he decides that he is a ultra, ultra Greek. And he's like, the whole world should be Greek. And I know that we have, have passively pushed the culture and that everybody knows Greek culture and everybody speaks Greek language. But he said, I actually want them all to worship Greek gods and only Greek gods. I want to stamp out everybody's gods. Well, you know who the toughest time he had of stamping out their gods? Exactly. The Jews, because they just wouldn't go along with it. And so Antiochus decides that he is going to persecute the Jews and force them to deny their God, not worship their God, and he does it in some interesting ways. And you'll see this, by the way, happening in our world today. Think China, think Uyghurs. Same exact methodology. So what he did was, this is from the book of Maccabees, and I'll talk to you more about it, but it's written in this time, in between the Old and New Testament. It's not inspired, that's why it's not in your Bible, but this is a, a work of history. King Antiochus wrote to his whole kingdom that everyone should be one people and that each should forsake his own laws, his own gods. And all the nations agreed according to the word of the king. And many people in Israel consented to it also and sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. And the king sent letters by the hand of messengers to Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah, Israel, 
that they should follow laws that are strange to the land, should forbid their burnt offerings and sacrifices. Remember, they've got that little temple that Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt after they came back, so they're sacrificing. He said they should sacrifice pigs and unclean beasts, and they should leave their children uncircumcised. That's, that's just unthinkable for Jews. They should make their souls abominable with all manner of uncleanness and profanation or profaneness. They might forget the law and change the ordinances. And whoever will not do according to the word of the king, he will die. According to all these words, he wrote to his whole kingdom and he appointed overseers of the people and he commanded the cities of Judah to sacrifice city by city, to sacrifice to the Greek gods and to deny their gods. So <clears throat> I wanna tell you the story of what happens with this persecution. This is probably one of the most brutal times in Jewish history. But before we do, this is a really good time to explain to you where certain people in the New Testament come from. So at this time you have Jews, and when this persecution comes, some of the Jews said, okay, I'll sacrifice because I don't want to be killed. So I'll sacrifice to your God, whatever. But some of the Jews wouldn't. And they said, kill us if you want to. And man, it was brutal. I mean, it was a death penalty to have a copy of the Bible, of the Torah. It was the death penalty for the child and the mother to circumcise your children, to make them Jewish. It was, they killed so many Jews. They tortured so many Jews. It was, it was horrific. If you read the book of Third uh, and Fourth Maccabees, which I'll tell you about next week, it details in gruesome detail the things that they did to Jews to try to intimidate them to stop worshiping. But there were certain Jews who were called the pious ones. That's just the name they took on. And they said, look, you guys are Jews, but you're sacrificing to the Greek gods. You're not real Jews. And so they had a name and they called themselves the pious ones. And that word in Hebrew is Hasidim. So if you've heard of Hasidic Jews, that's where that word comes from. It means the pious ones, the ones that won't forsake God even if you kill us. So Hasidic Jews are a branch of Orthodox Jews today, but that's where that comes from. Well, right about this time, think middle of the second century. So he ruled from 174 uh, to about 164, right around there. About that time, you start seeing certain groups of Jews splintering off into different sects. You have the ones that are just faithful and they called themselves the Hasidim, the Hasidic Jews, the pious Jews. But this is where, and I'm telling you this now because you're, this makes a lot of sense in the New Testament, but this is when they started. So think 160 or so BC, before the New Testament. You get the Sadducees. The Sadducees were Jews at that time and they tended to be better off economically. Uh, not too many poor people were Sadducees. They believed that fate plays no role in human affairs. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul and they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They looked at the Torah, uh, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, called the Law of Moses, the five books of Moses, the Torah, they said, that's all there is, and there ain't no resurrection in there, and there's no immortality of the soul, and you have complete free will, and 
You know, if you decide to serve God, then he'll reward you. If you don't, he'll punish you. Sadducees, not the most devout, but they did believe. They simply did not believe to the extent that some of the others. The Essenes, oh my gosh, they're on the other uh, extreme. They're the ones that people think uh, did the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we'll talk about in our next lesson. The Essenes believed in all of this. They thought fate determined everything. Like you think you have free will, you don't have free will. God is orchestrating everything in your life. They believed in the immortality of the soul and they believed there would be a resurrection and a judgment at the end times. And they hated the Sadducees. They thought they were just you know, lukewarm Jews. And the Pharisees. Pharisees, there were never very many Pharisees, maybe 6,000 Pharisees, not as many as you'd think, but they were very influential. And I know in the New Testament, you get a very bad image of the Pharisees and for right reasons. But Jesus did say some interesting things. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean by that? They were very, very devout. Paul was a Pharisee before he's converted. They believe that fate and free will are both operative, that you make choices and God is also sovereign. I mean, look at the history we just talked about is Cyrus made some choices, but it ended up ultimately working out for what God had wanted. God is still sovereign. That's probably more what you believe. In fact, this is gonna sound offensive and I don't mean it that way, but if you were a Jew back then, you'd be Pharisees. God, that did not come across well, did it? But, <laughs> but you would be Pharisees in the sense that you think that too, don't you? You believe God is sovereign, but you also believe our actions matter. You believe in the immortality of the soul and you believe in judgment at the end times. And you are devout, meaning I want to follow Jesus Christ. For them, it was, I want to follow the law of Moses. You would be Pharisees then if you were, they were devout. I want you to get the idea of how devout they, they were. All those three sects started up about this time in history. So you can kind of hold that because 150 years later, they're all gonna be active at the time of Jesus as well, but I wanted you to know when they came about. They came about during very hard times. Let's go back to Maccabees. So one day, the king's officers that were enforcing the apostasy, meaning they'd come to town, call everybody together, usually get some of the elders and say, you go sacrifice first. Uh, or, you know, or we're gonna do bad stuff to you, and that would pretty much line up all the other people in the village would follow their example. They came into the city of Modin, which exists today. Modin to sacrifice, and many of Israel came into the square, and a man named Mattathias and his sons were gathered together. And the king's officer spoke to Mattathias, because he's one of the elders, saying, you are a ruler and an honorable and a great man in this city and strengthened with sons and relatives. Now, therefore, you come first and obey what the king says, as everybody else in the world has done. And uh, he says, and there are other Jews that have done this as well. So you and your house will be numbered amongst the king's friends, and you and your sons will be given silver and gold and many gifts by coming forth first and bringing everybody peaceably along to follow the king. Mattathias answered and said, if all the nations that are in the house of the king's dominion listen to him and each one falls away from the worship of his fathers and have made the choice to follow the king's commands, even so, I and my sons and my relatives will walk in the covenant of our fathers. Heaven forbid that we should forsake the law 
and the ordinances, the law of Moses. We will not listen to the king's words to go aside from our worship on the right or on the left. Well, things aren't going well, are they, for the king's messenger? And so this event, which is happening in about 167 BC, goes on, and so Mattathias doesn't come forward, but when Mattathias finished speaking, one of the other Jews came up to sacrifice on the altar. And Mattathias saw it, and his zeal was kindled, and his reins trembled, and he showed his wrath according to judgment. This is just the way they wrote in Maccabees. And he ran and he killed that Jew as he was sacrificing on the ark. And he turned on the king's officer and he killed him too. And then he tore down the altar. He was zealous for the law. And so he said, everyone who wants to follow the law of Moses and keep the covenant, come with me. And he and his sons fled into the mountains and forsook everything that they owned. And off they went into the mountains. And this comes to be called the Maccabean Revolt. And it's called Maccabean because uh, Mattathias had several sons, but his third son was named Judah. Judah was like the fullback on the high school football team. He's a bull of a man. And his nickname was Judah the Hammer. And Maccabeus means the hammer. So Judas Maccabeus. And so he was the, he ends up, these kids get killed. I mean, this is a bloody, difficult revolt, and they are under, un, underarmed and way outnumbered, way outnumbered by the Greek troops there. But, so the, several of the boys get killed. You can read this story there. I'll tell you more about it next week. But several of the boys get killed, but Judah, Judas is the one who successfully actually defeats them and conquers Jerusalem. Let's go on with the story. And Maccabeus, that's Judas, and those who were with him, the Lord was leading them, recovered the temple and the city. Meaning they not only fled into the hills, some time has passed here, little time. There's the revolts going on. They're successful. Oh my gosh, they kicked the Greeks out of Jerusalem. And they go into Jerusalem, into the temple, and they cleanse the sanctuary, remade the altar. They tore down all of the idols, uh, offers to idols there. And then when they done these things, they fell on their faces and implored the Lord that they would, he would restore them. So this happened in between 167 when they revolted and 164 when they, this is BC. This is where Hanukkah comes from. And you probably know this, it's not in your Bible. Well, because the Old Testament's done, isn't it? So it's not in the Old Testament. We're several hundred years after the Old Testament. We're between the two. But this event is such a big deal that it's celebrated today. What happened was, is they throw off the rule, they go into the temple, and they need to light the lamp. And the lamp burns 24-7 in the temple since Solomon built it. But it can't just be regular olive oil. It has to be consecrated olive oil. Well, they only have enough olive oil for one day and it takes seven days to consecrate some more olive oil. But that oil miraculously burned for eight days until, so the light never went out. That is Hanukkah, the festival of lights, because the light stayed on, the, it burned for eight days miraculously, 
didn't run out of oil until they were able to consecrate some more oil. And so Hanukkah today is the festival of lights and you'll see these eight lights and you light one each day and it's remembering this event that God intervened for his people and helped Judah Maccabeus uh, destroy the Seleucids and reconsecrate the temple of God. And so what you have for about 100 years, so from 164 until the Romans show up, and that's another story for in about 63, and I'm really leaving a lot of details out, but the Jews actually have independence. I mean, they have their own kingdom, and it's called the Hasmonean era. Forget the word itself, it's not important how that came about, but if you ever hear the Hasmonean era, it's that 100 year period where they threw off the Greek rule and they ruled themselves for 100 years. There were Jewish rulers and they were independent for 100 years. This event, by the way, really influenced, really influenced expectations when Jesus came. Now you probably wondered, why did they think the Messiah was gonna be a conquering king? They didn't think Judas was the Messiah, but they thought he wasn't the Messiah and he ran the Greeks off so the Messiah, if Jesus is the Messiah, he's gonna be like that, only he's gonna throw off the Romans who are even more powerful. And so having this event happen in their near memory, right, is very much influenced their expectations of the Messiah. So when you get into the New Testament and you wonder why are they not reading some of the prophecies about the suffering servant and they're just thinking about this whole conquering king thing, it's because this just happened. How in the world would they think they could overthrow Rome? Because they just overthrew the Greeks 150 years earlier. They felt God's with us, we're gonna do it. And in fact, they tried. Didn't try in Jesus' time, but if you remember, after Jesus' resurrection in about 33 AD, in 66 AD, the Jews do rise up and try to destroy the Romans. It was disastrous. Uh, they didn't destroy the Romans. In fact, the Romans destroyed the temple again, a la the Babylonians, and it's still not there today, never came back. But Jesus comes and they're looking for a ruler like Jesus. Now you may be thinking to yourself, whatever happened to that nice guy, Selu you know, Antiochus, you know, the Seleucid guy, he's the last Seleucid king. So what happened to him? Well, he could not believe that his army had been defeated by this Jewish rabble. His policy of stamping out Judaism way backfired on him. I mean, a lot of Jews did what he wanted, but it just took a handful that said no. And I believe God was with them and they overthrew him. So he gets on a boat and, and gets out of the country. And so he goes to these coastal cities and everywhere he goes, and here's the problem with being a dictator, is as soon as somebody realizes you're vulnerable, everybody rebels. And every, this, now what I'm telling you now comes from rabbinic literature, take it with a grain of salt. But according to tradition, he would go from city to city and everywhere he went, he found them rebelling too. They thought, hey, the Jews can do it, we can do it too. And he ended up going from God-like status to everywhere he goes, they're rebelling and he ended up drowning himself in the sea. So a fitting end for our friend Antiochus, right? So hugely formative time in the period of the Jews. And so the Greek rulers 
have done a lot of bad things, but now everybody in the world can speak Greek. And everybody in the world has some similar philosophical ideas. In fact, I'll give you a simple example. In the New Testament, the word, it's in Greek, and the word that's translated hell is the word Hades. We well, you know what Hades is? It's the Greek underworld. Why would in the New Testament they use the word Hades? Because everybody in the world understands what Hades is. It's the place the Greeks think you go after you die. And the Christians go, that's not exactly right, but let's work with that because everybody understands it. So when they read hell, they realized, oh, the unpleasant place you go after you die. So you see what I'm saying is God used in the New Testament all these ideas that were now worldwide. And that's how the New Testament can spread throughout the whole world. If it's written in Hebrew and it's just got Old Testament stuff in it, nobody else understands that. But because of Alexander, everybody understands these ideas. So you see how God uses the evil things in the world and bends them to his purposes to serve his purpose. Well, the fourth kingdom is the kingdom of the Romans, the fourth vision. And this is the one that will usher in the Messiah. But I thought, since we have a little time, I'd like to talk, I want to take a time out. And in our next lesson, I want to talk to you about the Jewish writings during this period. So we got the Babylonians, Persians, we just finished off the Greeks, okay? But there's a whole 400 years there, and that's when the Maccabees was written. It's not inspired, but there are a ton of things the Jews wrote in between the Old and New Testament, and some of it is wild stuff. That's what we're gonna do next week. I'll see you then.